Please turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4, Jonah chapter 4. And just for a bit of context, I'm going to read um, from uh, chapter 3 and verse 4 and down. So read along with me. Uh, Jonah chapter 3 and verse 4 and following. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this account. More so for what you did in the life of Jonah, and the lives of all these Ninevites whom you called to repentance and saving faith, this great revival. And Lord, now as we look at this particular passage in this account, please give us insight and understanding as to what exactly took place, what happened, and the lessons that we can learn for our lives and our own time and place. We thank you for your grace. Please be with me as I preach your word. I pray that your word would go forth through me in power and precision and accuracy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, <clears throat> there's a saying many of you no doubt have probably heard before, and that is this, that truth is stranger than fiction. And uh, for those of you who have never heard that saying before, aren't completely sure of its meaning, what it refers to is the fact that sometimes in life and history, events and circumstances take place that 
could not even be imagined by the most creative storyteller or screenwriter. Um, things in, we may have even seen in our own lives or in history or movies or documentaries, stories that took place that almost seem impossible to imagine on your own. And uh, I think of this saying, and, and you know, I think of history, and, and in particular, um, I think of uh, the circumstances of people and events leading up to and throughout um, World War II, and all the results of them, and, and the fact that that time in history and what God was doing, they, they, they paint a narrative that can only be explained by the providence of God, and, and so much so that we are still living in a post-war world. On a smaller scale, we could think of people who have lived extraordinary lives that are full of twists and turns and tragedies and triumphs and providential guidance, such as Newton or George Whitfield or even Winston Churchill. I think of this fact that truth is stranger than fiction. It, it makes me think of a couple instances in, in my own life and, and even in the military, which seemed like I was in the middle of a movie. Uh, it just, I remember um, one such uh, circumstance, and, and it was during a training exercise, and we were in the Mojave Desert, and, and just hearing this briefing with these, this small group of soldiers around me, and it was just the, this unit that I was not a part of, but I was attached to, to train with, and, and just the characters, the soldiers, and during this briefing and the words, and it was, it was almost like, it was like I was in the middle of a movie, just the, the type of characters. And it's like no, no casting director could have placed these individuals here in this moment to say these things, and I almost had to look around to see if there was cameras around me. Just the the goofiness of a certain guy or the gruffness of a certain sergeant or it was just amazing <laughs> like, uh, I couldn't have imagined it myself and some of you may have been in events like that that you can look back but it, either it was in a workplace or on a vacation or um, a tragedy or a great blessing but there are these times in life that it's stranger than fiction. And, and, and this is what the book of Jonah is like. It, it, it's like that. It, it's stranger than fiction. And so much so that, I mean, some, some liberal theologians see it as allegory, but Jesus accounts it as true. It is a true, real-life historical narrative of amazing characters and events and twists and turns in which the main character, Jonah, he goes from being a grossly disobedient prophet disciplined prophet to a wonderfully repentant prophet and mightily used prophet to now a greatly discontent and pouting prophet. And it's, it's like, as we read this book, um, it's like, just when you think it couldn't get any crazier or more stupendous, it does. 
And yes, it's easy. We can read this whole book in, in about 10 minutes. The whole narrative could probably, probably took place over the course of about a month or so. Um, especially in, in Jonah's um, trip to Nineveh. Wherever he was spit out from the fish, it, it had to at least take him a couple weeks to get there. And, and even time fleeing from the call of God and going down to Joppa, that had to at least take a few days and, and maybe a day or two or a week on ship and, and a few days in the belly of the fish. This is, it could be a long, very long narrative and we just get these snapshots. But whatever the case is, however long it took, this, this is a story that is stranger than fiction. And it's true. It's real life. And, and a lot of times that's how real life is. And that's how God works. And here in, in, in this, these few verses, in the beginning of chapter 4, this, we see this account of Jonah's awful response to the awesome work of repentance and salvation which God did in the city of Nineveh. And in these five verses, we see four aspects of Jonah's sinful response. First and foremost, we see Jonah's awful attitude. Verse 1, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. We see, his awful attitude in two aspects. First, his, his sinful perspective on the situation, and then his misguided emotions. His sinful perspective and his misguided emotions. He, and right here, you, you may have a note in your Bible where it says it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And in the Hebrew, it, it, the, the verb pulls it out a little bit more. It says in a sense, could be translated, it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. He saw this situation as evil. He considered the, the repentance of the Ninevites evil. He, he, he considered their repentance uh, invalid or, or not worth God's merciful response. He, and it could even be said that he considered God's mercy evil. He, he, he turns everything up on its head. He, he turns it inside out and backwards. And as, as Isaiah says, he, he calls uh, good evil and evil good. He sees this great revival, this great work of repentance as evil. Because he rightfully saw the Ninevites and the Assyrians as their empire as evil, as the enemies of Israel, as this rising empire that, that would, um, though at that time it, it may have um, been in a lull in a, in a, in a, a time where uh, they weren't an immediate threat, but they were a rising threat. And they were the, the prime enemy of Israel at the time. And so Jonah, he rightfully saw them as evil. But here in 
seeing their repentance and God's mercy and their revival, he sees that as evil. And, and, and sometimes we can look on the unbelieving world, we can look on uh, the evil people in the world, and, and we, see, we rightfully see their evil, but we forget our own sinfulness. We forget God's mercy. And sometimes, like Jonah, we, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't really want to see them saved, or we don't want them to experience God's mercy. This reminds me of, there's a, a time in my life uh, not long ago when I first uh, started seminary and I was in this um, Bible study of, of young adults and, and, and there, was, there was one young lady who uh, she was having a birthday and she wanted to celebrate her birthday party for some reason at an Irish pub. Not to drink, but she wanted to eat Irish food. None of them drink, but she wanted, and so sure, she, we went along to celebrate her birthday party at an Irish pub. And it was uh, in the early afternoon, but still, you go to an Irish pub, and but what you would expect to be at an Irish pub, <laughs> people drinking, and people drinking and watching sports and doing what do when they go to a pub to drink and watch sports, they, they swear and, and they have foul mouths and all this thing. And, and, and remember, um, here, we're here in this church group and, and they start complaining. <laughs> and I almost, in a sense, me and, and another person, in a sense, had been, well, what did you expect? This is what happens in an Irish pub. And this is, I remember one, one um, young lady, she went on and on and, and about how they, they didn't like this and, and didn't like hearing these unbelievers um, uh, cursing and then goes on and on about unbelievers. And she says this, and I'll, I'll never forget this. She said, you know, sometimes I'm going out in my day and, and, and I see a beautiful sunset. And I see God's creation. I see this beautiful sunset. And I say, Lord, why do they get to see this? Talking about unbelievers. Why do they get to see this beauty? And it's, it's almost like, what? I, didn't even, I didn't even know what to say. I didn't even know how to respond. Even after they were dumbfounded by the, the, the sinful behavior of the people in that place, the unbelievers in a place that do things that unbelievers do, and then now she says this, and it's almost like, have you forgotten the gospel? Have you forgotten your own sinfulness? Or do you even realize your own sinfulness? That you don't deserve to see the sunset. You don't deserve to see God's beauty. You don't deserve any of God's blessings. It's all of grace. All of mercy. And if anything, you shouldn't be complaining about these people. Your heart should be broken for them. You should say in your heart and your mind, but for the grace of God, there go I. But this can happen. 
when we insulate ourselves and dwell upon ourselves in our own comforts, in our own religious experiences, and don't care about the unbelieving world and have lost sight of the gospel and the impact of the gospel and what the gospel means. And there is a sense that this is what's happening to Jonah. One commentator, he writes this, he says um, on this verse in verse 1, he says, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. It was exceedingly evil to Jonah. He says in, in the previous episode, the pagans got rid of their evil. And God got rid of the disaster. He had threatened both, and there's both the underlying Hebrew term for evil, um, for their evil and God's disaster. And he says, the pagans are in harmony with God, but Jonah is not, as he alone is now characterized by displeasure or evil. He sees this great work of God as evil because he did not want them to repent. He did not want them to be spared. He did not want them to experience God's mercy or His grace. He wanted them to be crushed, to de be destroyed. He wanted fireworks. He had a sinful perspective. And his awful attitude was also characterized by his misguided emotions. He was angry. He was seething. He was hot. His anger was based on his evil expectations. And, and there's, a, there's an aspect of, of anger that is always based on some sort of law or standard that we have um, an expectation for reality or for how things are supposed to work out. And it doesn't go that way, and so then we get angry. I, I, I like to use this analogy when I talk to people or counsel people about anger um, in terms of road rage. Because it's a perfect analogy. You even say road rage. We're, we're on the, the freeway or, or we're on the highway and we have, um, in our mind, an expectation. It's supposed to take us such and such time to get to our destination, a half hour, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, whatever it may be. And then something happens, traffic jam, um, accident, whatever it may be, and then we start looking at our, the time of arrival, and that gets shorter. Someone cuts us off or, or whatever. And so what happens? Reality is not matching up with our expectations. So there's, to use a musical term, there's dissonance. There's not harmony. Reality is not harmonizing with our expectations, and so the response is anger. And this is what was happening in Jonah's life. That reality was not meeting up with his expectations. And his expectations were not in line with God's character or his will. And not only that, but he, has for, he had forgotten um, God's character and the sinfulness of mankind. If he truly understood what he deserved... And what all men deserved, he would be rejoicing. And this reminds me because 
even in, in verse 10, it says this of, of chapter 3. It says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And this kind of likens back to another account in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 6, where God, um, in a sense, says that he changes his mind or he regrets. And God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Um, he is immutable. But when, when we hear these words, it's, it's what theologians would call an anthropopathism. That he is, in a sense, um, showing human emotions to, so that we can kind of understand him a bit more. He had al always planned this. But in Genesis chapter 6, it says this, and, and, and talking about right before the flood, and, and verses 5 to 7, it says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And God says right here that he, he'll blot out everyone, all of creation. And in a few verses later, it says that Noah found favor in his sight. And what's interesting about the flood Yes, it was a universal flood over the whole world. It blotted out everybody. It killed all the beasts on the land, except for those that were in the ark, all the people except for eight of Noah and his family. But if you think about the flood, not everyone died by drowning. In fact, there's probably only a few people that drowned, that died by drowning. If you think, you know, as the rains were coming down, what happens in, a, in an agrarian society? That we use, they, they had to burn wood to um, heat their homes and to make food. And, and when that's all wet and they cannot make food anymore and, and, and the water's coming up and then the, the sewage and wherever they would um, relieve themselves is coming up and, and, and then things are wet and there's disease and chances are that many people died from starvation or from sickness or as the waters rose and the, the places got tighter and tighter to the safe places that they killed one another until finally there was no place left and then whoever was left over drowned. But the, the amazing thing about the flood is not that God destroyed all those people. The amazing thing is that he saved eight. Because they all deserved to die. They all deserved to be crushed. It would have been right for God to start all over. Because man was that evil and man is still that evil. And just as he told Moses... God was frustrated with Moses and he was about to wipe out the Israelites and start all over. I will start all over with you. 
And they deserved that. And this is what Jonah had forgotten. He had forgotten what he truly deserved. And because he forgotten what he truly deserved, he forgot the gospel. He forgot God's mercy. He was looking at the situation based on his own law, which it wasn't entirely wrong. It just left out God's mercy and His grace and His steadfast love. He forgot the character of God and man, but he also forgot the character of Israel. Because Jonah, as we said before in previous messages, is Jonah is a symptom of Israel. He is a picture of Israel as a whole, as a nation, as Israel was meant to be a witness nation, was meant to um, take... Uh, the good news of God and His wisdom and His character to the world to show the greatness of God, to um, be a refuge for sojourners and exiles, to uh, be an example. And in Deuteronomy, in the beginning of Deuteronomy, Moses writes um, concerning the, the people as they're on the plains of Moab before they're about to enter into the land he writes Deuteronomy the second giving of the law in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verses 7 to 8 um, Moses reminds Israel of this he says it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you for you were the fewest of all peoples but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You're nothing special. You're nothing special at all. You're just, I made you. I, I love you because I love you. And because I swore an oath to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And not because they were special either but because I chose them, because he called Abraham out of Ur, of the Chaldees. And later on in Deuteronomy, in chapter 9, in verses 4 to 7, it says this. Moses writes, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. In a sense, Israel, you're just as, almost just as sinful as the rest. It's just the fact that externally you may not have all the um, accoutrements of idolatry. There are idols in in you, as Joshua would later say, and Moses even said. But there's nothing special about you. God chose you because He chose you. And He loves you because He loves you. Because He called you. And, and so you're, you're just as, as much deserving of His wrath and His judgment as any of the other nations. 
Israel had forgotten this and Jonah had forgotten this. Another commentator writes um, that Jonah's emotion is expressed in the strongest language possible. His greatest fear was that the Lord would bestow forgiveness on Israel's most hated enemy. It displeased him exceedingly, and he was angry. So first we see Jonah's awful attitude, and then second we see Jonah's awful complaint. Verse 2, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And so we, we see three parts of this awful complaint. First and foremost, his, his forecast. He, he, he forecasted this. In, in, in a sense, in, in 2a, he says, and I prayed to the Lord, verse 2, he says, and I prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? In a sense, Jonah says, I told you so to God. To, to, the, to the creator of the universe, Jonah the, the disobedient prophet says, I told you so. I told you this was, would happen. It's, thanks, Jonah. Thanks for reminding me, the creator of the universe, what is actually going on. Jonah's will was not aligned to God's will. That, that was the problem. He, there is a sense that he knew what would happen. And he was displeased with it. He, was, he saw it as evil. He was angry about it. So we see his awful complaint starts with his forecast. And then his excuse. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. This is why I disobeyed. I have a, a, I have a good reason. Those are my drugs. Those are my friends. I'm just holding on to them. It, it, it's interesting because it, I, I remember Iraq and, and we caught some terrorists and they had that excuse. <laughs> like, these, these weapons aren't mine. These are my cousins. I told them it's not good to fight the Americans. God, that's, that's why I disobeyed. I told you they would repent. I, I know you were merciful and gracious. There, there's a good reason why I ran away. It's horrible. It, we, we see in his, his, it's an awful complaint. Starting off with his forecast, which was true, but from a, just a, a cantankerous heart, uh, heart of hatred and partiality and racism. And, and then his, his excuse, his lame excuse, that is why I disobeyed. And, and then his charge against God. It's almost like he turns God's own character on its head against God. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He, he, he charges God um, with God's own character. Listen, listen, God, if you weren't so merciful, I wouldn't have been so disobedient. It's not my fault. 
this is this is an evil heart. And, and, and yes, you know, though Jonah he genuinely repented of his disobedience to God's calling. That that was a genuine repentance in chapter two. But it was a repentance um, from the disobedience to the call. He, he, he had yet to repent of what was going on in his heart. His attitudes that led to that disobedience. His, his attitudes of partiality and hatred and racism that, that were in his heart towards these people. That he didn't want them to, to be saved or to come into um, experience God's mercy or His grace. And, and so we see Jonah's awful attitude. We see his awful complaint. And third, we see his awful request in verses 3-4. to Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? This awful request is, there's a few things here. First, his despondent request. This is despondency because... um, he didn't get his way. And so he, just like how when he was on the ship, he could go down into the belly of the ship and fall fast asleep in the middle of the storm. He's so despondent that he asks to, for the Lord to take him, for the Lord to kill him. And it's interesting because when we don't get our way, and we're dwelling upon ourselves and our desires and what we want, sometimes we can feel like there's no way out. There's no way out. And this is where um, depression, despondency, and even suicide are all linked together. Because at the end of despondency and despair and depression is, well, there's only one way out of this. And that's to kill myself. And this is, this is where Jonah's at, but it, at least he knows enough about God and about his calling to know that he can't just kill himself. He asks God to take him. And so we have his despondent request at the beginning of verse 3, and then we have his pessimistic reasoning. That he says, for it is better for me to die than to live. So it, it would be better off if I just died right now, then to live and go on. And, and there's, there's, as I was um, looking at this and, and studying it, it's interesting because I, I, I've never seen this before as i just reading the book of Jonah, but many past theologians, they, they see this um, as his, his desire to die, that it was, he would see himself as a failure as a false prophet. Because in his eyes, when he repented and he was going to proclaim uh, destruction and judgment, um, he, and he did think that maybe this would come true, but then on the other hand, he says, um, you know, in the beginning of chapter 4, that I knew this would happen, that you would be merciful to them. But it, it's almost as if God gave him this message of judgment and if judgment did not happen, did not take place, then he would be a failure. He would be a, a, a false prophet. Or, or more than that, 
maybe he really thought that he could return to Israel as a hero. That he could go preach judgment to Nineveh. God could hopefully destroy Nineveh. And then he could come back as that, uh, you know, that, that lone soldier who went forth to proclaim judgment. God pronounced judgment. And it's almost like in the scenes of the movies where you see that, the action hero walking and then behind them there's all these explosions and fire and it just comes through unscathed and, and then he's the hero. Perhaps that was in his mind. I don't know. Puritan Matthew Poole, in his commentary, he writes this. He writes, This begins his complaint or quarrel against the Lord. Was not this my saying? Did I, need, did I not think of this? Was I not apprehensive that it would be so I should preach avenging justice, and thou wouldst exercise pardoning mercy? Thy pardon would contradict my preaching. In my country, either in Canaan or Galilee or in Gath Hefer, where had I died and never been a prophet to Nineveh, I had ever had the reputation of a true prophet. But now at Nineveh I shall be reported a false dreamer. Therefore I fled. There was reason for what I did when I declined the message and fled away from thy presence. This may have been true, but I think more than that, it was Jonah's hatred, his racism, his partiality. And probably in addition to that, understanding his role as a prophet, that he wasn't, prophets weren't only supposed to proclaim, thus saith the Lord in judgment and, and repentance and turning to the law, but in addition to their proclamation, to their preaching, there was a, a teaching ministry as well. That, that, um, in a sense, he may have thought that in the Ninevites being spared, that he would have a follow-on mission to have to teach the Ninevites how to live and obey God. Which would be true. That if they repented, and this is probably what happened, I'm sure... Um, you know, when we get to heaven, we can ask Jonah, and, and I have a feeling this is what happened to Jonah after. Is he probably returned to Nineveh, and he probably taught them about more in-depth about who God was. And, and seeing his enemies spared, he did not want to have to show them grace. He did not want to have to live amongst them and teach them God's word. It's like, Many missionaries throughout our whole um, history of the church, this is what missionaries do. They, they not only proclaim the gospel in and, and, and hopes that, that sinners would be saved and converted, they, they, they don't just go to foreign nations and proclaim the gospel and, and, and sinners are saved and they say, okay, well, you're saved now, good luck, and you know, the Lord will take care of you. No, they stay there for years and decades even translating the Scriptures, teaching the Scriptures, walking and living amongst these people who, before they came, were pagans, and teaching them how to live in obedience to God. And this was part of Jonah's ministry as well. 
that God spared the Ninevites, and sure, he would have to then stay, because how else would they know about God and how to live in obedience to God? And that, that may have also added to the fact that to his reluctance. And so in this passage, we see Jonah's awful attitude. We see his awful complaint. And we see his awful request. And then finally, fourthly, we see Jonah's awful withdrawal. That he withdraws um, and stomps off. Verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. It's interesting. It's it's almost comical. You know, you you, you try a picture in you know your mind the the facial expressions and, and just the pouting and it's almost like you know you could see his lower lip just growing and, and sticking out. And it, and it reminds me of, you know, sometimes, you know, when someone's pouting growing up, you know, a, a parent would say something along the lines of, you better tuck that lip in before you trip over it. You know, it's like I could totally see Jonah doing that and stomping off, storming off. And so we see his awful withdrawal and his departure. He departs the city. And, and it's interesting here, because it says that he went out of the city and sat to the east of the city. Now, Israel is to the west. He came from the west and traveled east to Nineveh. So, he's not, in a sense, working backwards towards Israel. He's going in the other direction to the east. And the only reason I could see why, why wouldn't he go to the west back from in the way he came? And the only reason I could see is, is maybe it was because of the terrain. Because maybe he was looking for higher ground, for a hill, which would be in the east. Somewhere where he could sit up on top of a hill and overlook the city and maybe hope that God would actually destroy it. Because this is, this is what he did. He went there and, and so he, he departs. We see his departure, and then second, we see his dwelling. He made a booth for himself there. And this, this term for booth, and this is in, in the law, in the Feast of Booths, that, that the, the people made booths in the wilderness. This is, in a sense, a, a lean-to. It's a shelter. It's a, it's a makeshift shelter of, of sticks and twigs and branches and, and leaves. If you think of, um, I don't know if you've ever watched those shows or the read books about survival and how people make a lean-to, a, a thatch roof or whatever, and then that's what this is. And, and, and he made his, his dwelling, he made this dwelling to sit in, all depressed and despondent and um, dissatisfied and discontent and angry at God and angry at the Ninevites and pouting. And he makes this booth probably up on a hill somewhere so he can overlook the city and just hope that they will be destroyed. And, and what's more uh, just depressing and, and just despicable is that fact that this booth 
it, it wasn't even it wasn't even adequate. It, it wasn't even the Lord. It, the Lord would later appoint a plant to come up over it, because the booth was probably um, just sparse sticks. It, it, once again, this is comical. This is cartoonish. <laughs> I think of something like Charlie Brown, just like just sitting there and, and just in these sticks, this this faulty shelter, and, and then he just pouts, he mulls over, he deliberates what will happen. Sitting there pondering, says he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Just sitting there pouting in his room as a petulant little child. And it's interesting because the Lord's rebuke. And, and, and you know, when you, when you counsel somebody that's so filled with rage and hatred and despondency and depression, you, you can't you can't come um, with the full truth. You gotta because they're not able to accept the truth fully. You gotta feed them little bite-sized pieces of truth, and you gotta do it in such a way that they will accept it. And, and it's so. I mean, the Bible says that even talking about Jesus, that He is the wonderful Counselor. That God, the Lord said, "Do you do well to be angry?" That's all he said to confront him. Do you do well to be angry? And, and that probably did make Jonah a little bit more angry, but it was something, just, just enough to confront him, to chew on that. Do you do well to be angry? Just, just consider. Think about this. Matthew Poole once again writes this. He says, The Lord who is now, as Jonah needed, he should be, gracious, slow to anger, and of great kindness toward Jonah. Else he had not lived a moment longer to repent him of his last sins in this matter. Doest thou well to be angry? Is thy vehement anger warrantable? Or will this anger of thine do good to thyself or others? Think well of it, whether thou do, dost act like a prophet, like one that feareth God, or like a man in this, in this thine anger. You know, speaking in the, the old English, but... You know, nonetheless, it's amazing how the Lord confronts him with that question. Do you do well to be angry? Like, take a step back, Jonah. Look at your life. Look, look in the mirror, so to speak. Consider. Consider everything that has taken place. Consider who these people are. Consider who you are. Consider who Israel is. Most importantly, consider who I am. As you just told me in your excuse that I am a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's the sole reason why you should not be angry. Why you should not be pouting. I just did a great work of repentance and you should be re rejoicing. And, and this reminds me of a, of a, a story in the New Testament. 
in the New Testament, I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to come up with, with illustrations and analogies and, and comparisons to what is taking place in the life of Jonah because not, Jonah is a book of extremes. Showing the extreme uh, sinfulness of Jonah and of the Ninevites and of Israel and of uh, the extreme nature of God's discipline and his miracles and, and the extreme revival. I mean, it, it is a book of extremes from one end to the other. Hard to see these comparisons, but they're, to, to see a comparison or something to uh, an illustration. But, you know, in the New Testament, Jesus, um, he tells a parable about the prodigal son. In Luke chapter 15, you can go there and, and see this. Luke chapter 15, and, and he tells us this, this story. And it's, it's a great story considering um, what happens in salvation as God calls us out of our sin and out of the, the sin-cursed world to, to receive us into the family, into his family, to give us uh, new life and give us eternal life. And, and he tells this story about the sinfulness of this prodigal son and, and, and how he, he asked for the, the, his father's inheritance. He didn't even want to wait until his father died. In a sense, he was saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Just so I could have your, your estate and all your money and then I could go live however I want to live. And that's a picture of how unbelievers, um, whether we can admit it or not, that's in a sense a picture of how we view God in our unconverted state, that, that we um, not only um, reject God and don't believe in God, we wish God, in a sense, was dead, and that we could be God of our own lives and have all the things that He has given us in creation to do with whatever we please, and live our own lives how we want to live. And, and Jesus talks about this, this great sinfulness of the prodigal son, and then he talks about his great repentance. And then at the end of the story, in Luke chapter 15 and verse 25, he says this. He talks about the older brother. He says, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is a picture of what was going on in Jonah's heart with the Ninevites. He was angry. He was petulant. And it's even more sad because Jonah's own disobedience. Jonah couldn't even claim that he had obeyed perfectly. 
or, or even close to perfect. He disobeyed. And, and yet, he has this attitude towards the Ninevites. John MacArthur, in his book, The Gospel According to Jesus, he comments on this parable of Jesus, and he says this. He says, This son's behavior might seem more socially acceptable than his younger brother's debauchery, but it was just as outrageous and every bit as dishonoring to the father. The older son had no real love for his father, or he would have shared his father's joy. Serving his father all those years, he had just been going through the motions. He served out of duty. His chief concern was that was what he could get for himself. He had no understanding of his father's heart. Here too was a lost son. And the father sought him as well in verse 28. The Lord always seeks to save the lost, but they must see themselves as lost. Often the most flagrant, irreligious, repugnant sinners are quicker to understand their depravity than people steeped in religious achievement and self-righteousness. These Pharisaic people cannot tolerate the forgiveness of sinners, especially flagrant ones. They do not understand repentance. Far from rejoicing, they are repulsed when a sinner confesses his or her sin. They take great pride in their apparent righteousness, but in their hearts there is no sense of submission. Their hearts are full of self-righteousness, of I deserve. Don't you know God? Not only am I an Israelite, I'm a prophet. I mean, come on. Who are these people? These pagan tiles. Not only are they pagan, they're wicked. They don't deserve your grace. They don't deserve your mercy. But Jonah, do you deserve my grace? Do you deserve my mercy? No. That's why it's mercy. That's why it's grace. Because it's undeserved. And that's what we have received and that's what we are to preach to others. That's why Jesus said to the Pharisees, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are closer to the kingdom than you are. And, and it's interesting because you know, sometimes one of, one of the easiest ministries to do is either like a prison ministry or a rehab ministry because you don't really have to convince them that they're sinners for the most part. Every once in a while you get a guy that will say, oh, I'm innocent. But for the most part, it's like, hey, look around you. And it's like, yeah, I'm pretty messed up. Yep. Now there is something in the heart that you need to you know, work on. And God does need to do a work. But Jesus was right. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are closer to the kingdom than you are. And we all need to come to that point to realize that none of us meets that standard. None of us meets the standard of God's holiness. We all deserve his wrath. We all deserve to be punished, to be destroyed. But if we've received his grace, if we've received his mercy... We are to then go and preach that grace and mercy to others and even the worst of all people. And yet at the same time, not to, um, not to uh, turn a blind eye towards their sin. As even Jesus said in, in the, the, the account of the, um, 
the, adult, the adulteress. He tell, tells her, he says, um, is there anyone to condemn you? She says, no, Lord. He says, neither do I. But then he says, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. There's mercy and there's grace here, but you need to turn from your sin. And that's the message we preach to others. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this account. More than that, we thank you for your great grace and mercy that you've poured out upon these Ninevites and in, in that even as Jesus said, they will rise up in the judgment and condemn others who heard his voice and saw his miracles. We will see them in heaven. Lord, please forgive us for any self-righteousness in our own hearts, any partiality towards others. Help us to embrace the fact that as the one man many, many years ago said, but for the grace of God, there go I. It's all of grace, all of mercy. And Lord, you are a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and bounding in steadfast love. Lord, help us to embrace that about you and to tell others for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.